everyone. Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman and A.J. Cooley. And we are in Chapter 3 of James K.A. Smith's How Not to Be Secular. We were planning on doing both Chapters 2 and 3 last episode, but ran a little long, so we're going to jump into Chapter 3 today. Uh, if you are just now joining us, feel free to go back and start at the beginning, a few episodes ago, of this book review of James K.A. Smith's How Not to Be Secular, which again is itself a review of Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. Uh, finished the book this past week. It's a, it's a good read. Um, I found it was actually, Drew, from doing this podcast with you for the last three and a half years, um, reading Smith helped me understand you better and how much you have been shaped by Charles Taylor and these uh, these types of ideas. And so uh, even though we co-host this podcast, I feel like I am on the learning curve, uh, and this was a really helpful resource. It's like the origin story in a superhero movie. That's right. Only not a superhero. Just a... You are you are the superhero. <laughs> yeah, the just superhero. a very nerdy uh, yes. guy who likes to read. Hey, love it. Uh, you are the guy who would choose on a Friday evening to read some obscure uh, theology book, curled up with a cup of coffee as, uh, for a good time. So uh, we could all stand to learn something from that, I'm sure. Um, so let's just dive right in. Chapter three. So this chapter is called The Malaise of Eminence, which just sounds cool. I mean, I just want to start by acknowledging... I hope whenever I write a book, I can come up with chapter titles like that. Or fire up your dad emo band. (laughs) (laughs) The malaise of eminence. So what what he's talking about um, with this phrase is he's capturing the feel of a secular age. So he's trying to get into how is somebody who is living within a secular age how are they experiencing the the world? And it's this this malaise. It's like this cloud over it. Like things just it's not working right. It's not moving in the right direction. Things feel stalled out. Um, I don't know how else you might define that word, but I think that's what he's trying to capture. And it's important to remember he's he's uh, doing phenomenology. So he's going for experience here, not proposition. So he's not starting with tenets of a secular world, although he does get into that. But he's trying to capture the feel or the German word zeitgeist of the modern world. That's actually been a really helpful distinction for me, even those two words you just used, phenomenology and propositions, and the idea that the age that we're in is more phenomenological than it is propositional at a lived at, a, at the level of kind of our lived reality that most people, and maybe this has always been true, but um, perhaps more so now in kind of this, it's not fully postmodern, but this uh, this more, I guess, secular three age than maybe in kind of the modernism and the um, the empiricism of the Enlightenment into the 19th century. Um, that that this is at the level of of phenomenon. This is at the level of experience, and not often at the level of logic and propositions. I've just been thinking that I've been mulling over that for the past few weeks and thinking about some different stuff that I've been reading or conversations I've been having, and it's making sense of those at a level that I haven't experienced uh, until recently. So I appreciate that distinction. I'll be a good postmodern here and make the point that why this is being drawn, the attention is being drawn to this is that there's a lot of good research out there, both on a psychological level, but also um, on a more philosophical level, that what drives us is not our propositional beliefs. It's other things that drive us. Um, it's our the, the cultural systems in which we live, um, our deeply embedded belief systems. It's 
our desire to belong. It's our aesthetic taste, like we talked about last time. Like these are the things. And so how a postmodern might critique modernity is you had all those things going on 100, 200 years ago, but you tried to cover it up by using logic and then trying to project logic as though it was rational, neutral. And so in other words, I'm, I'm inventing logic, so to speak, or I'm developing logic to coincide with what I already want or what I already feel or what my culture has already taught, as opposed to uh, maybe an understanding of logic as a neutral belief that I've inherited or developed via scientific method or something like that. And so that's why there's been such a turn in society towards, um, I, I don't like post-modernity because I think it implies that we are not modern anymore. Um, hyper-modernity maybe is a better word, or late modern modernity, however you want to describe that. And, and it's exactly that, that point. And so what we're trying to do here is we're saying the whole point of this hyper-modernity is you can't analyze it with logic. So instead, we're capturing the feel of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't go all the way there, but I think it is a lens with which we can look at this. Right. And that leads to the fragility. Yes. Right? That this explosion of all these different believable ideas. Yes. And I think that's a key concept. Uh, we talked about the Nova effect last time, but um, fragility. And if you take this, these two thoughts, that there has been this explosion of meaning making in the world, of the possibility of things that I can believe, leads then to fragility because no matter what I believe, I'm surrounded by other beliefs that are opposed or different in some way. So everyone's belief system is fragilized. And I I don't have the luxury anymore of living in a society where virtually everybody thinks the same, teaches the same, and my whole life is spent within this relatively cohesive belief system. Or maybe there's a system of belief and I have a couple different options, like a choose your own adventure and there's one or two different paths, but it's still all within this uh, you know, nice, neat box. I don't know that that's ever been fully true, but what we have today, uh, even even if that's, you know, an oversimplification of how things may have been in the past, today certainly we have a whole lot more options available. And I would say that was a philosophical development that took place, and that's what Taylor's charting. But then if you add on top of that the internet as a means of dissemination of all those ideas, those two things come together. And man, I'm just surrounded by things, surrounded by options, and that's where you get people saying, I just don't know what to believe. I'm just going to pick something, you know, mm-hmm. because they're, they're so overwhelmed by the amount of options. <clears throat> what it also means is for those of us who are deeply embedded in a single belief system, there's a fragility that we have to face is that we can't escape having that belief system being challenged. I think for the Christian believer, that's really obvious. I think those of us who, especially, you know, if you went to university somewhere, if you're on the internet, like you're, you're aware of that. You're aware of the reality of that. However, what Taylor is also saying, you know, via Smith, that I, that I really appreciate is it's not just a reality for a Christian believer, but it's also a reality for a believer in secularism. And so somebody who is living within a secular belief system, they don't find the peace of having this nice neutral belief system either. They're also surrounded by opposing belief systems. So people kind of yo-yo back and forth. Um, at one level because we're surrounded by proximity. Now, of course, I'm telling this from a purely sociological standpoint. Obviously, I believe that you also have in all of that is the power of the Holy Spirit drawing people. But that doesn't, even though the Holy Spirit is doing that, it doesn't change the fact that I'm also having to interact with a lot of different groups. And maybe that's part of what uh, could be used to describe the title of this chapter, The Malaise of Eminence. And you talk about the, the Holy Spirit drawing, and there's a scripture, this is obviously from a Christian belief system stand, um, standpoint, but that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And he talks a lot about um, significance, that the Nova effect is is 
is essentially a quest for significance, people finding significance and this idea of imminence. We talked about the imminentization of society last uh, episode, but this um, non-porous or what was the kind of the self-contained, what was the term? Buffered. The buffered reality that we live in, the buffered self, the buffered universe, that there is nothing transcendent. There's nothing outside of our experience. And so we are grasping for significance within the buffered uh, reality that we inhabit. And that just doesn't, this is more at a, at a level of phenomenology, but that doesn't resonate with most people, or we could possibly even uh, make a case that doesn't resonate with anyone um, uh, uh, un- like at the most fundamental level in a way that... that um, spans an entire lifetime. And so this quest for significance in that meets this fragilization of what has become believable, these cross pressures that he talks about uh, throughout the book that has contributed to this Nova effect. So I, I appreciate where um, both Smith and Taylor go on page 71, and they say that religion and science disputes have an intramural quality, which I thought was a fun way of explaining this. But you see in this chapter a lot of talking about secularization in religious language. Elsewhere, he refers to converts to secularism. Um, Page 76, um, somebody telling you they've converted to unbelief, which is a great way of saying that. uh, uh, Provocative language there, converted Mm -hmm. to unbelief. But they're they're using religious language here. And what what he's talking about when he's saying they have an intramural quality, which I think is important for us, We, we touched on this last week, is that a lot of our arguments end up conceding the standards of modernity regarding what is reasonable and what is logical. So the point he is making with this is that a lot of Christian belief has, and this could be across the intellectual spectrum of, he mentions fundamentalism all the way into um, liberal Protestantism. Um, So, you know, really all across that, what we have inadvertently done is we've conceded a lot to secularism as far as what it means to present the Christian faith in logical or reasonable terms. And that could be us arguing for something. Um, so that, that is where you get into the realm of a certain branch of apologetics or um, certain types of more fundamentalist leaning Christian and science discourse. That could also mean us capitulating, and that's where you get in like Schleiermacher and a lot of the um, liberal theology that started in the mid-1800s. But both of those, what they're doing is they're coming under the presuppositions inherent to modernity. I think we we can probably see another wave of that happening in post-modernity now, where the emergent church movement, which lasted for a couple of years and then it really fizzled out, um, but it was it was a more overt idea of we have to identify what are some of these um, presuppositions in postmodern culture, and then how do we reorient the church accordingly? Uh, that strand of thought certainly still exists, even if uh, the, the title that it was under in the early 2000s is gone. But in all of these things, what we're doing is we are seeding or conceding the standards of the logic of modernity and the logic of postmodernity as the starting point for our faith. Now, I, where I, I find this kind of stuff can be important, I'm actually going to give an example of somebody I met one time who uh, grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian home. I'm honestly probably over the top. But I remember they were, they were talking to me and they were challenged because they were taught as a kid that if you can... They were, they were taught a very specific way of interpreting the entire Old Testament and what was and was not to be taken literal. 
And they were taught that if you could prove any one of these things wrong, then the entire thing would come crashing down. So it was like this very high stakes, every single thing that ever been taught about how to t interpret the Old Testament and how that would then correspond to modern science and all these other things that if any of those were wrong, then therefore the entire story of the Bible was wrong. So they were explicitly taught that. Well, then this person, as they got older, they started coming across things that challenged some of that. And that eventually undid their entire faith and they walked away from the Lord, which is really sad for me, you know. And, and if you can kind of dig into that, what, what we see happened is that person started by accepting a standard of proof. So the standard of proof was that the Bible had to be interpreted this specific way. And please hear me, I'm, I fully advocate that the miracle stories in the Bible are real events that really happen. So uh, it's not that I, I fully believe that. Um, but what this person got taught is more than just that. They weren't just taught that the Bible refers to real events that happened in human history, but it was very specific ways of, of how they were interpreted and, um, and, and things that are pretty contested. They were taught all of it had to be read in this one literal way. And so then that fragilized their faith in a really deep way to the point where they ended up losing it. And I think that's an example of where this can go wrong, even for very strong believers who have the best of intentions, is they have inadvertently accepted the standard of truth that's inherited to modernity. And I think that's what, what Smith and Taylor are getting at here is they're saying, let's take a step back and let's, let's recognize where we've actually come under cultural assumptions, and that may not have been the best decision. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh... That maybe segues into this idea of the no man's land that uh, Taylor or Smith starts to talk about on page 73, this idea that um, we are not actually inhabiting these camps, these well-defined camps of belief or unbelief, but rather most of us live in this kind of cross-pressured cross space between these fixed points, kind of wandering around between various options that have become believable, but not in, not firmly inhabiting any of them. Is that how you, you understand what he talks about when he says, uh, when he refers to no man's land? Yeah, and I think what he's talking about is nobody can get the upper hand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, certainly um, the kind of moral majority Christianity of the 1980s, it's pretty obvious that 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 impulse no longer has the cultural power it used to, and even at its peak, it never had the upper hand. But the flip side of that is secularism can't get the upper hand either. And there's a lot of frustration on that side too, you know, and it, uh, nobody can really seem to fully get the, up, the upper hand in this. And so instead what you have is this no man's land where I, I think that's where you get a lot of people where uh, maybe they're answering none on a survey as far as their religious affiliation, but they actually do believe in God in some way. They're just kind of tired of all the fighting, and so they're off to make their own meaning. And um, I think that's what he's getting at here. Or maybe they have you know a couple years on one side, a couple years on the other, but it's not just these neatly defined camps and people fall in one or the other. It's this continuum space in between, and there's movement in that continuum space in between. And all of that is under this this larger heading of fragility in a secular world. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, your example of your fundamentalist friend from earlier, uh, they don't live in a vacuum. We are socially mm -hmm. formed. And so they live in this, this space, this society where all of these various options are believable. They're going to, they're raised in a context with a the family. They are consuming various forms of media. They're going to an academy at some point if they go to university and they're exposed to all these different um, these different assumptions about the world, which further fragilizes this, this fairly rigid way of understanding a set of propositional truths. Exactly. Yeah. And that then leaves you with, okay, so who am I? Where do I fit? And I think that 
maybe in modern society leads us to um, some real issues regarding identity, belonging, some pretty fundamental things like what is our purpose that have been fragilized at best and, and I think contribute to a lot of different problems. Now, we, we had um, a, a question or a comment um, uh, that somebody had asked us about of asking us to comment more on the failure of secularism. It's a quote that we had. I can't remember if it was our direct quote or if we were quoting um, Taylor or Smith. And I would encourage if you're wanting to dive into that more um, to make sure you read this book because I think they're going to get into it more and a lot of rabbit holes you can go down as far as what all this could represent. But if I were going to tell the story and this fragility, this no man's land, you know, kind of weaving all these things, sometimes it's helpful just to take stock on what, what is the larger argument that is being made here? And I want to go back to the very beginning where uh, uh, Charles Taylor is presenting secularism two and three. So if you remember this concept, um, and make sure you go back to our first episode, because um, it's really important for understanding all the other things we're talking about. So he describes secularism, I'll actually start with secularism one, is simply the separation of church and state. Secularism two is what we talked about at length the last time, which are subtraction theories. And secularism, too, presents as a normal belief system and inhabits an, a narrative where it's describing how layers of religious belief and mythology are being stripped off and instead are being replaced into uh, human reason, human universal truth based on common shared experience, some type of common culture, um, a lot of optimism regarding human potential and power, human solidarity, you know, things like that all would be in this realm of secularism too. And, and the crucial thing to understand with that is that it is a supposedly neutral way of understanding the world. And what has happened is it is subtracting religious and other mythological meaning from it to boil it down to this neutral thing. So it's like peeling back. I remember when we bought our house, we had all this wallpaper on the wall. So it's like peeling back the layers of wallpaper that have covered up the walls behind it and the wall behind it is secular and we're kind of getting to it. Now, the problem is that belief system is untenable in a postmodern age um, because the whole point of postmodernity is you can't know universals. We can't see outside of our culture. Who, who's to say that what I consider to be a universal truth is actually a universal truth and not just a product of my own culture? That's, that's the in a very simplified version, that would be the postmodern critique of that. And so now what you have is not secularism two, you have secularism three, and that is the Nova effect that we just described, this explosion of meaning, the no man's land, all these different opportunities. It's not just a, to a choice between historic Christianity and atheism. And in fact, there's a, I would say the majority of people are neither of those things. There's some kind of blend that incorporates elements of both or a whole host of other options that, they've, that they have created in some way or found in some way. And... This, this is when we get into the failure of secularism, and I think this is the important point to make with all of this, is secularism too. So that's the one, the subtraction theory. It's a narrative, and narratives make meaning in the world. And so the narrative here, and I, I was thinking about this today, the narrative um, is something to the effect of there was this point of time, probably in early Greek culture and then Roman culture, where humanity was advancing. There's these democratic societies, lots of power, civilization, and development, but then the church came to power, you know, post-Constantine. And that led eventually to the demise of the Roman Empire, the collapse into the Dark Ages. And for about a thousand years, humanity's development was stalled. It was stopped. 
But then we had this time called enlightenment. And enlightenment is where these brave people started thinking freely again outside the confines of the church. And they start discovering science and philosophy and art and all these different things that, that the Catholic church had suppressed for so long. And that started a new explosion of reason and meaning. And gradually, we're now on this multi-century trajectory of undoing all that had happened with the church and even maybe some of the mythology from Greek and Roman times to get us closer and closer to this point where humanity is able to come together again because we're stripping off these things that have been imposed. And that, that's a story, you know, and I don't, you know, I would think that a lot of people, you've picked up that story in certain ways. In fact, even with my own kids, it's interesting processing with them some of the history books that come across is they'll, they'll ask questions and they'll be like, why was the church and science? Why were they at war with each other? You know, because um, they'll come across something, you know, and it's, it's a deeply embedded narrative in the psyche of the modern self. And I think most of us, maybe if you haven't heard it explained quite that overtly, have certainly understood that narrative and embraced that narrative. And so here's why that's so crucial, is if I'm a believer in secularism, I need that narrative to make sense of the world. Because what that narrative does is it gives my life a sense of purpose. I'm helping humanity progress into its future. It gives my life a sense of morality because it's giving me a story and I can locate myself in the story. Um, and you know, in, in a way, it even gives a sense of morality. So like all these things can derive from that story. The problem, and I see this, I don't know if it's argued quite this explicitly in Smith and Taylor, but if not, I'll just put my name to it. The, the problem is if you take away the story Secularism three has a whole lot of problems to it because all of a sudden it doesn't have something to stand on. It's based on a, you know, I guess a proposition or a, a belief of maximal individual um, atomic, you know, atomized, like me not connected to you, but just me on my own freedom of expression, human freedom. And I think maybe if we were to analyze it a little bit deeper, it's me having the freedom to chase my own innate desires. And that could be sexual, that could be, um, uh, that could be financial, that could be power, that could be various forms of art or self-expression. But it's all kind of based on this idea. And I'm not saying that those things are, are bad. I think all those are beautiful, wonderful things. But the purpose of my life is then me having the freedom to go do whatever I want in those different areas so that I can make meaning for myself in the world. But I'm detached now from the broader narrative that, that gave rise to that in the first place. So in other words, maybe another way of saying it is, this house has gotten built that is secularism three while the foundation got pulled out because it lost its narrative. And even in a, uh, you know, I would say a non-Christian philosophical understanding of the world, the secularism two narrative like doesn't even make sense. Um, and I've read a lot of very brutal takedowns of it. You know, I mean, I think one of them that's um, bearing in mind is that a lot of the people that developed this narrative, they had this nostalgia for ancient Greek and Rome where half of the society was enslaved. Um, Rodney Stark has a great book called The Victory of Reason. I don't, I'm not a historian to, to offer a critique of it. I'm guessing a lot of what he says is disputed. But a point you walk away with is it's not as though Rome was this great bastion of science and learning. I mean, they actually suppressed a whole lot of things. And certainly for the half, you know, 40% of the population that were enslaved, it was a really bad gig. And then if you think of all of the different smaller kingdoms on the edge of the Roman Empire, they had a really bad gig. So yeah, if I was Latin living in Italy, it was probably really nice. Or if I was a Greek, it was probably really nice. Just like every other oppressive regime in history, you know, there's some winners and there's a whole lot of losers. That was the Roman Empire. And I, I don't think as Christians or even as moderns, we should be wishing that it had continued. I think it was a gift to the world that it fell apart. 
Um, one of the most underrated achievements of the Catholic Church is ending slavery in the Roman Empire. And I thought that's, you know, really a powerful thing. Um, part of why, um, you know, Rome collapsed is it's under the weight of its own, uh, you know, like all empires, it, it got too big, um, too luxurious, too oppressive, and it fell apart. Um, but then you have, you know, a, a crazy civilization chaos, and it was actually the Catholic Church that provided a lot of the stability and continuity of learning so that much of what was good was retained. And there's good research out there on monasteries and um, whether that is the, the Celts or other groups that kept that learning alive. Um, some of the monasteries and churches in Constantinople did the same thing. Then you see even some of that being transferred into these other Germanic and Slavic tribes. It's actually a pretty cool story. I, I think it's also worth noting that serious historians would never use the word dark ages unless you were referring to the early Middle Ages and the relative lack of manuscripts. So the historical record is dark, but it doesn't refer to a moral time of darkness or a lack of learning. In fact, in the 1200 BC, there was, or I'm sorry, 1200 AD, there was an explosion of the university system. That's when the whole concept was formed. That's when Christian theologians started taking the idea of God's order in the world and exploring it in a really serious way. And we wouldn't do it the same way as them. And um, it's easy to criticize um, retroactively because now we've gone further, but they're the ones who got it started. Mm -hmm. And it was all within the confines of the Christian church. And in fact, most of the great scientists of that era gave credit to their predecessors. They're not, they weren't saying that we're inventing something new. They're actually going back to the Christian scholastics from the 1200s saying, these guys got this going and we're just building upon their work. And most of the famous names that we all learned in school who had these great scientific discoveries were incredibly devout believers. And so a lot of the conflict did emerge, but it was really in the backdrop of political stuff with Galileo. I mean, they all got caught up in politics. That's why there was problems. It wasn't science. And I could keep going. So the more you look at the historical record, the story, the narrative of secularism too, it just all falls apart. And it's really not that great of a story. It doesn't really make meaning in the world. So now you have secularism three, and it's something that's evocative. It's something that's in our culture, but it doesn't have a foundation. So when I say that there's a failure of secularism, what I'm describing is a pervasive, powerful belief system that has a lot of inconsistencies internally, and it doesn't have the, the background narrative to support it. It doesn't have... Um, you know, a lot of the different things that you would expect, the morals, the, the telos, all the different stuff that a belief system needs to have to sustain itself, it's not there right now. And I'm not saying that secularism is not going to develop all that. I think it almost has to. So I would imagine over the next 100, 200 years, it's going to stabilize in some way. But what I am saying is point in time today, it's a really large global religion that's very inconsistent, very fragile, and does not have the, the resources it needs to, to create a compelling story for what it is and why it is. And it's because its background narrative got ripped out and we're left with this kind of Nova effect, secularism three, but it's really fragile. That's great, Drew. I, I think too, I don't have a sophisticated enough grasp of history and sociology to, to say this with uh, the degree of conviction that it maybe could warrant, but even just looking at, you know, uh, kind of a, a global statistical analysis of what has the fruit of secularization been. And, you know, again, this is this is massively oversimplified, massively overgeneralized, but the 20th century was one of the bloodiest in mm -hmm. history. And um, on the heels of all this kind of modern uh, optimism, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there was a, I think, kind of the hypermodernity that you're 
describing came on the heels of the of the pessimism or the realism that that um, that settled uh, on the general populace in the 20th century on the heels of you know brutal world wars and and dicta- dictators um, in these kind of atheistic frames and regimes that were making meaning according to their own designs and their and to justify their own ends. Uh, and then today, you know, you look around, and um, the this is purely anecdotal and observational, but the the level of depression, anxiety, the rates of suicide and opioid uh, addiction, and so on and so forth. And I'm not pinning all that on secular secular thought. Um, however, I would I think it merits a deeper point of reflection. Is is secularism and throwing off the shackles of kind of these ties to transcendence? Is that yielding the the freedom and the um, the holism that it is promising, uh, when at the root is this idea of kind of disconnection uh, and not uh, not connection, and we're seeing that in the atomization of society. Yeah, and I think it's what what happens is when secularism is forced to stand on its own two feet, it really struggles as a belief system. When it can be seen as the stripping away of Christianity or other forms of belief. And when it can present a narrative that supports that, then it becomes appealing options for people. But when you're a- having to step back and say, actually, secularism, you're, you're not a neutral belief system. This is not a subtraction theory. This is something that has been taught and inculcated in society that now people believe. And we're going to interrogate secularism on its own terms. All of a sudden, it has a lot of problems. I'm actually, I read a, um, a book is actually on patristic theology by Mikhail Barnes. Um, I, it's French name. I don't know how to pronounce it properly. So people are learning about my poor foreign language pronunciations here, and I apologize. But he is writing, and it's actually, it's the book is very technical on um, history of, of the Nicene period um, in early Christian thought. But his last essay, it's a collection of essays. It's all about moral theology of Augustine and kind of comparing it to modern modern theology and modern Catholic moral theology in particular. And I've just found the whole thing so so fascinating. Uh, it's it's a wild essay. Um, don't have time to get into all of it. But he had this one little footnote. He said it's popular knowledge, and he has knowledge in um, quotations that many have been killed in the name of Christianity, which is true. Many have been, especially the Thirty Years' War. Um, there was a lot of, of bloodshed. But he goes on to say, um, it's not popular knowledge that in the 20th century millions were killed in the name of reason or science. For the Nazis identified their thought as true reason with a capital R, and the Marxists identify their thought as science with a capital S. And what he, what he's doing here is um, now he he's he's writing from a Catholic perspective. He's going to be very um, what's the right word uh, supportive of Catholic history. I might be a little more critical than he would be, um, especially of um, where where the church has led to death and suffering. And I think we have to acknowledge that. At the same time, he's also not wanting to let secularism off the hook. He's like, hold on, you guys can't make all these claims about Christianity suppressing things in the world. Look what you did. You know, Look what happened when um, secularism finally got the upper hand. It led to two global wars and a whole host of other evils. So, so why is this version of the human story getting a free pass? Why aren't we looking at it with the same level of criticism and critique that people do with Christian history? And that's what he's arguing for. And he... He's talking a lot, referencing Augustine, but he's talking a lot about this concept of out-narrating evil, which I think is so, it's technical what he's arguing for, but it, it's this broader idea of everybody gets their own narrative. And he, what he's claiming is the narrative of the church out-narrates the narrative of the world. Mm-hmm. Like 
we have the opportunity to take the human experience and we get to tell a story. So yeah, the secular story is out there and it's under a lot of critique and attack to where the secular two version of it, like I said earlier, I think is borderline untenable anymore. So secularism three is what most people inhabit. Most people aren't out there as these, you know, um, card carrying atheists to have this, this self understanding of this perfect logical belief system. I don't think any of, I, I rarely meet anybody who comes across who seems like that. Most people are out there living in the no man's land. They're living between belief systems somewhere. They're trying to make meaning of the world somehow, but they don't have the narrative to support it anymore. And that's the failure because then that, man, that leads to so many problems for people. And I, and I wonder how much of, you know, um, maybe not having an overriding story certainly leads to um, identity problems because I don't really know where I fit anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I think it maybe leads to some of the challenges. I actually had a lively discussion yesterday of, where is the role of moral formation? And I, I think without some kind of binding commitment to purpose, to meaning, it's hard to form people in morals because what morals and why? Mm -hmm. Like morals, you know, they flow from some broader story. So without the broader story, where does morality even fit? How do we have cohesive communities and societies if, you know, if I'm just this person inhabiting my world, doing my thing, and you're a person inhabiting your world? And that's your point from earlier. How do we have meaningful connection? Like it creates tremendous problems. Um, and I think we're seeing the fruit of that with all those statistics you said, Mick, um, and the way that's bearing out in society. Yeah, Oz Guinness has a really thought-provoking talk where he he cites the um, the triangle of first principles or something like that upon which democracy is founded, and he, he basically just um, posits the question or poses the question: you know, can a democratic society continue to exist? Um, when it is based on this notion of freedom, which is based upon virtue, which is based upon faith, that virtue secures freedom, faith gives rise to virtue. And if you have a pluralistic, a truly pluralistic society that can't agree upon virtue, you know, and if you have a disagreement on what is virtuous, who or what is there to arbitrate, it's where you get into maybe kind of stray into critical theory and, and um, notions of power and dominant discourses and stuff like that. But um, I think it's a it's a um, it's a compelling thought experiment. Can mm -hmm. can democracy continue to exist? And this was an interesting um, kind of aside, or not an aside, but a point that um, Smith cites on page seventy five when he talks about within this lack of kind of a unified sense of telos of purpose of substance and meaning. Uh, the the meaning that we make for ourselves often finds its expression in art. And uh, this was a uh, a couple of uh, quotes that kind of gripped me. He said, um, even in, in this disembedded dis art, art that would exist within this imminent frame, it trades on resonances of the cosmic in us. And conveniently, art is never going to ask of you anything you wouldn't want to do. So we get significance without any ascetic moral burden. Something uh, of what such you a were, good quote. Yeah, what you were just uh, alluding to. And I think the arts would be just one one space where we find this connection with the transcendence, uh, but without that, you know, that transcendence imposing the burden of morality uh, on us. I was actually just thinking about, you know, Super Bowl weekend coming up at the time of this recording. It will have it will have happened. Go Chiefs, Drew. Rooting for you. I'm not going to jinx anything. <laughs> Speaking of transcendence, so by the time this episode airs, we will know the result. But you know, just thinking of these stadiums and the, uh, you know, the. Super Bowl happening in Las Vegas. And there's a real, you know, I went to one of the um, 
NBA Finals games when it was the Heat versus somebody. It was in oh, it was Heat and Thunder because it was in Oklahoma City. And I uh, went with my dad who had box seats. And this is really kind of embarrassing, but during kind of the opening show, I started crying. I was like getting emotional, just the sheer, um, the, the, the lights and the sound, and you could feel it vibrating in your chest. You kind of get swept up in yeah. this, uh, in this euphoria that's created very intentionally. And whether it's in the arts or whether it's in the sports and these, um, these big collective, uh, enterprises that we can engage in, uh, with our fellow humans. And we get caught up into this sense of transcendence, which we would argue, I would argue is a is a counterfeit to ultimate transcendence, though I, I love art as an expression of the glory of God, sport as an expression of the glory of God. But if that is the end in itself, if the terminus is in the sport or in the, the art, um, I think it ultimately lacks substance. And so um, we bounce from, you know, from uh, experience to experience. But this is an interesting uh, way to frame the malaise of imminence uh, in, yeah. in the arts. Yeah, you can look for it in society. There's a lot of quasi-transcendent things that people do. Uh, and I think it's to your point, Mick, it's, you know, they, they don't want to leave uh, maybe the broader secular understanding of the world, but they need something bigger than themselves. And so they look for it in different ways. You mentioned two very powerful ones. Obviously, music is an art that would go within that as well. I also wonder if maybe some of the um, kind of holistic health, soul care stuff that people pursue, I mean, sometimes they, they border on the outright or at least quasi-mystical. And on all these things, I'm not saying that there's you know, certainly some areas I'd be like, don't do that. But there's other things, I, I'm please take care of yourself and find ways to um, take care of your body. I'm not, I'm not taking shots at that, just like you're not taking shots at art or the Super Bowl or anything. Um, but I think those things as a stand-in for the divine are, are a poor substitute, and, and that's part of it, is uh, people are, are longing for that, and so they're having to invent things, which at one level negates the whole purpose of the transcendent. If it's something that you can invent, it's probably not transcendent, it's a substitute. And so what people are doing is they're creating these substitutes that just scratch that itch enough so that their lives have some form of, of outside meaning or meaning beyond, but it doesn't satisfy. It, it's like having a bite you know, when you need a meal. And so people are doing that. And I, you know, I look around society and I see a lot of ways that people are drawn to it. I mentioned astrology earlier. It's interesting how that's uh, become more popular, not less, or you know, crystals or all these things that just seem so weird. But it actually makes a lot of sense why people would be drawn to it because they're looking for something. They're, they're trying to create something where they can get this, this taste of spiritualism or transcendence, but without having to come under a different belief system. They want to stay within their belief system. And this this secularism three and what I just generally refer to as secularism, it allows them to do that. Yeah, they can bounce around within the no man's land to test out, try on all of these various Yeah, I can have like a really intense, weird art phase, and then I can go into a crystal phase, and then I can go into some kind of meditation, and I can like try all this kind of stuff. And what I'm looking for is like, what's going to fulfill me? What's going to add that to me? And, um, and, you know, I think we all know tons of people who've done that. And again, I'm not saying I, I, some of that I wouldn't do, but some of that kind of, you know, please, if you want to have an art phase, so cool. How was your crystal phase, Drew? My, my crystal phase never got off the ground, uh, fortunately. That's one I would not recommend. Did it overlap with the rave phase? <laughs> it, like I said, it never got off the ground. <laughs> um, but uh, I had enough other phases uh, that we don't want to talk about. That's fair. So let me let me um, end with this thought here of um, the... the uh, 
there is this thing on page 78 where Smith um, is talking about an imminent counter-enlightenment that turned against the secular analog of Christian values. It's a mouthful. And he gives Nietzsche as an example. So here's, here's what he is saying, is there are actually within secularism two branches that are at war with each other. And there is what I would refer to as the Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, I think is how you say it correctly, um, versus progressives. And so uh, the, the, the logic of uh, Nietzsche is that, that at the end, if this is all true, there is no morals, it's the will to power, and the, who are the clear-eyed people that can see that, recognize that, that that's all there is. Be honest about it, embrace it. Yeah, why do we keep putting this other stuff and trying to make these stories that make us feel nice about the world? Let's just confront the world as it is, recognize it for as it is. It's the survival of the fittest. And I don't think he's arguing that we should all become psychopaths. I think he's just saying, let's get rid of all the sentiment that we've created. If secularism, the story of secularism is true, let's confront the brutal facts as they are. And only when we do that, then we can figure out how the world really is, who humans really are, and that's what we need to do. And if you're familiar with Nietzsche, Nietzsche, I think it is. Yeah, anyway, if you're familiar with Nietzsche, I'll just agree with you there. Probably Nietzsche. I don't know. Uh, none of us are German, so he was German, right? That's the subplot to this podcast <laughs> is how badly I pronounce German things. Well, I mean, I think both of us typically read to uh, consume information, <laughs> and so I never know how to pronounce things either. But Nietzsche's madman, if you're familiar with Nietzsche, uh, he talks about the madman who's unchained the earth from the sun, and that would be this idea of, you know, of putting forth these notions of no ultimate transcendence, no ultimate purpose and meaning. And he was challenging his fellow atheists, his fellow secular thinkers, to uh, follow out the uh, those assumptions to their logical conclusion and what that would mean in the realm of society that's based on some notion of fundamental intrinsic equality of of mankind and so on and so forth. And uh, so if you're familiar with that concept, that that will make sense. So another way of saying all this is the metaphysics and logic of secularism leads to Nietzsche, right? Like that's where you end up with it. And that's the point you just made. But the highest values of secularism are moral aesthetics and the freedom of self-expression. So those two things can't be reconciled or at least can't be, they haven't been neatly reconciled. Maybe I'm sure people have tried. But that's the problem, is you have two, two things that are both true and trying to synthesize them. We talked about dialectics last time. Um, whatever synthesis may be out there is at least not compelling enough to stabilize the whole system. And once again, the failure of secularism is trying to fix one of those. So if I'm somebody who I'm just all for the will to power, then yeah, I don't have a problem, but that's a pretty bad world to live in. And most people aren't willing to do that. I think probably what most people do is they're like, I just don't wanna think about it. I'm just gonna live my life, who cares? And yet there's a fragility because in the back of their mind, they recognize that their beliefs don't line up and there's a, there's a fundamental foundations problem or narrative problem for them. And, you know, so if all knowledge, logic, common sense, morality, religion and social order is, is predicated upon social structs, uh, constructs that are, um, that are built to benefit people. And um, yet at the same time, um, these progressive values are, are themselves a social construct. And, you know, so how do, how do I like say that everything is a social construct, that, uh, you know, all these narratives are inherently oppressive while at the same time giving my own narrative? And that's what secularism or progressivism is trying to do. And it just creates all kinds of problems. So I, I think, you know, people like Nietzsche and Jacques Derrida, um, Foucault, people like that, 
um, can all be used here, um, even though they're all very much within the secular atheistic world. I can use them in my critique of secularism. I, I can say that the stories and narratives, morality, um, all of that that secularism provides is itself just another social product, social construct. And like all other social constructs, it's built for certain people at the expense of other people. And so there is even an oppressive element to it. And I, I don't necessarily view the world that way, but I could make that argument if I'm using that logic. And so that causes a problem, you know, and that that causes an inherent instability in the whole system that, that I think is tied to, to secularism. And for what it's worth, Google says Nietzsche. Oh, good. I'm glad that you checked. I, I don't know that Google's right, uh, but at least uh, there's a third party. Our epistemology of Google. <laughs> uh, so let, let, me, let me end this thought and why, why I don't dive into all of this. Um, I, I also recognize that as a Christian, there are elements of how we believe that we have to work through. And it doesn't mean that all of the Christian intellectual belief system is problem-free and we've sorted out every problem. I mean, there's certainly elements of within what we claim to believe that we also have to rec reconcile, wrestle with. You know, how is God good and they're evil that exist in the, in the world at the same time, as an example. Like, those things are there for us Christians as well. But I will say that the Christian traditions has thousands of years of wrestling with that, um, standing on that, brilliant minds and, and thoughts that I would believe to be divinely inspired. But if you were secular, you obviously would disagree with me. But that's all out there. And I, I think there's a comparative lack of that in secularism. And maybe over time, that's what happens. Maybe those things develop and... Um, maybe there's secular prophets, if I can use the word, you know, prophets that come along and sages that are able to present a, a more robust belief system for people. But that's not where we are today. So I want to go back to that concept of out-narrating, because I think that's what's happening here. And I think that's really what Smith is trying to do. He doesn't use that phrase to my knowledge, but he's trying to out-narrate mm -hmm. secularism by saying, yeah, that's the story. And let's, you know, let's be as charitable as it can to the story that it tells, but does it work? Is it a good story? Does it make sense of the world as we see it, as we experience it, as we know it to be? Not just in a, a feeling kind of sense, but where we do have logic and propositional truth and reason. It's like we have these thousands of data points, you know, of our experience, of history, of science, and we're looking to find the trend line that makes sense of all the data points. Does secularism do a good job of that? Or are there better stories out there? And that's, you know, I think what they're trying to present is we don't need to come under that story. Let's look at the Christian mm -hmm. story and see how that might make better meaning to the world. Yeah, and he'll, we'll talk about this probably next week when we talk about uh, chapters four and five, but he kind of ends with that exhortation to believers to embody a more compelling narrative rather than propositionally poking holes in secular secularism. That if we, if, if we are discerning truth phenomenologically, uh, in today's day and age, then we need to present something in a, in, in a lived experience that's more compelling and winsome. And, uh, I, and I will say, um, you know, I think all of us, when you think through what are our own foundations of faith, for me, it's not that Christianity tells a better narrative, though I, I do believe that to be true, and I do believe that helps to bolster my faith. Uh, I'm, what I'm not trying to argue for here is that we're doing an apologetic work, and we're now trying mm -hmm. to place the entire foundation of faith on what we believe to be a better narrative. Um, I, I believe at the core, it's because God pursued me. It's because of God's divine action in the world. It's uh, There's a whole host of other factors that lead me to my faith, not just in the narrative capability of historic Christianity. However, I, I say all that, and I also acknowledge that I, I am very um, underwhelmed with the narrative of secularism 
you know, vis-a-vis the, the Christian narrative of, of meaning making in the world. And, and that helps, you know, just like all forms of apologetic or, or reason or logic or whatever, they help to support what we believe. So what I believe is because of what God has done in me, in our community, in history, in God's action in the world, and ultimately the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit from within. And I can also look at the world around me and it makes sense of what God's done in me. So it's like all these different things that, that converge together. And um, I, I've heard people out there, the reason I'm making this disclaimer is um, sometimes they make it all about narrative, you know, where if I can make my narrative better than your narrative, that becomes a sufficient cause for belief. I'm like, I don't think that's true, but I certainly think it helps add foundations to belief. It's great. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Uh, I've been informed that uh, something's going to drop on our Instagram channels. Uh, we consistently put some of our bloopers and extra material on there. AJ has been cooking up something for us. So check it out. at For I- you specifically. Yes, apparently. At Ideology PC. And uh, feel free to reach out to us uh, if you have comments, questions. IdeologyPC at gmail.com. And we will catch you next time on Ideology. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.